Hey, have you heard about popcultureclassroom.org? Pop Culture Classroom inspires a love of learning, increases literacy, celebrates diversity, and builds community through the tools of popular culture and the power of self-expression. That sounds awesome. Pop Culture Classroom envisions individuals transformed by the educational power of pop culture who create diverse, inclusive, and engaged communities, and they bring us Denver Pop Culture Comic Con. So... That's why you get these panels, these guests, these interviews, all of this programming that we offer through the BAC network. Other things that Pop Culture Classroom gives a shit about, quality service to kids and communities, respect, inclusiveness, and diversity, equality of opportunity, alternative approaches to education, recognizing each person's intrinsic dignity and importance, that's always good, and open communication, responsibility, and honesty. Does it sound like I'm reading that off their website? It's because I am. I want to get it right, because they deserve to get it right, and they deserve to have you go to their webpage, popcultureclassroom.org, and donate so that they can keep on trucking with their awesome mission to change the world through pop culture and literacy and education and etc. something, dearie. It'll happen to you, too. <laughs> How's everybody today? Good. Good, good, good. Wow, these are big classes, aren't they? Drink <laughs> out of that. Um, I'm serious. Oh, there we go. Thank you so much. A two. A toast for yeah. I'll take this one. Thank okay. you. Everybody had a nice day today? Yeah. Yes. Good. I had a nice day too. Wonderful fans here in Denver. Thank you for coming. Stand up. <laughs> My God, I, I never looked that good in the three and a half years we did the show. But I tell you what, it sags in all the wrong places. It's supposed to suck in all the sagging parts, but I lost the instruction book. For me. Ah, there you go. That's, that's my story, too. And I'm sticking to it. Oh! There you are. Please forgive me for wearing my glasses, but... Uh, now, if we're going to take pictures, I'll take them off. <laughs> All right? We're not going to take pictures, I'll leave them back on. Well, what should we talk about? Besides uh, me being back in Denver, I don't know if you all know that uh, I, I was uh, lucky enough to work with my mom, Barbara Hale, on the Perry Mason uh, movies that we did. They did from 1985 to like 93 or 94. And I was uh, fortunate enough to work with them, with Raymond Burr and my mom, for the first four years, from 85 to uh, 89. And then I, I made a, a departure to go work again on another series with Cannell called Top of the Hill, which uh, only ran a half a season. But to digress, 
we worked here in Denver. We shot the first one in uh, Toronto, the second one in Vancouver, and then all the subsequent episodes, the movie of the weeks, we shot here in Denver. And uh, it was it was lovely. I really uh, I really enjoyed it. I my son, one of my sons went to school in Boulder, so I was here in Denver quite often up until about ten years ago. And uh, my God, I can't believe how how the city has changed. <laughs> How do you deal with all the traffic? <laughs> we complain a lot. My goodness sakes. I thought LA was bad. But uh, this, this traffic rivals Los Angeles, believe me. Uh, everybody, everybody in LA, I tell you the truth is, a lot of my friends in LA, a fair amount of them, have moved out of Los Angeles and moved to uh, other parts of the country because it's gotten so expensive to live in California. They are taxing us to death. Um, but that's not why I'm here. I'm not running for office. So. A president would be great. Yeah, that, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, impeach him. He'll get us in a war before that happens. Anyway. I'm not political at all. <laughs> um, I'm for the green guys from my show. Well, I'm, okay, uh, what should I talk about? Should I talk about Hero or, uh, or should I talk about uh, when I was a baby? <laughs> start at the beginning. Start at the beginning. I guess that's the, a, a very good place to start. <laughs> Wasn't Ju didn't Julie Andrews say that? <laughs> Wasn't that what she said? Mm -hmm. That's right, in that wonderful song that she sang. Uh, my first memories in, in Hollywood, I came from a Hollywood family. My mom and my dad were both actors. Uh, my dad was a vaudevillian dancer, and uh, he came to Hollywood to be, a, to be an actor in the early 40s, I believe, right after World War II, mid-40s. Uh, met my mom in the 50s. Uh, she was uh, at RKO for years. And uh, a little piece of trivia, she knew Raymond Burr years before she knew my father. They, were, they had met on, a, on the lot. It was at, at either RKO or Columbia. And they became very, very fast friends. And they stayed friendly until Raymond passed some years ago. Uh, he was always very kind to our family. Was like he was like an uncle to my family. Um, so it was fortunate when years later I got to work with him and be on the set with both he and my mom. Uh, I, I grew up in a Hollywood family, uh, had lots of uh, celebrity uh, folks that would come over to our house, uh, Clint Eastwood and any number of people from that time. One of my earliest memories as a young actor was working in an episode of Rawhide with Clint Eastwood. Um, that was uh, quite memorable for me. Um, I didn't know at that point that I was going to be an actor. I just happened to be the son of two working uh, act television actors, and I guess I could read okay, and I got the role. <laughs> uh, I went on to school. I was always involved with music pretty much all of my youth. Uh, studied, I went to school and studied music theory and composition in college. Um, 
I did work in the theater at that point. I was working with South Coast Repertory, uh, working behind the scenes, doing the light and soundboard, and I auditioned for We Bombed in New Haven, which was a Joseph Heller play, my first actual play that I did. I started uh, working with, uh, my first television appearance was with David Jansen and Yapit Kodo. Um, I had uh, played a Marine sentry, and that was very interesting working with, uh, David Jansen was uh, iconic at the time from Fugitive. This is after he had done The Fugitive. I don't know if our younger people in here know what that was, but Tommy Lee Jones did a reenactment of that. It was a great film. But earlier on, there was a TV show. That's where he came out of. And Yapit Kodo was probably most famous for his appearance in The Alien. Anyone here see The Alien? Yapit Kodo was amazing. Well, I got to work with him. Let me tell you, he's crazier than a June bug. <laughs> <laughs> but in a good way. You know, there's a lot of actors that like to rehearse and do the same thing pretty much over again and again and again. Yapit Kodo was one of those actors like he and Gary Busey and uh, Feruza Bolk and whatnot. They never do the same thing twice. So you have to really be on your toes because they're gonna throw you curveballs all the time and you gotta hit it back. So that was very exciting working with Yapit and getting a taste of that. I was kind of prepared because I came out of the theater, um, which I did a lot of theater in my life from the time I was 17 or 18 to even recently. I always liked doing theater. My, my probably my uh, claim to fame in the theater was working with Bob Fosse when I did Pippin back in 1981. Uh, I don't think it ever got better than that. I did some other great theater projects, um, working with uh, the famous Maya Dillon, on stage doing uh, The Days of Wine and Roses with Jack Hofsis, um, who won a Tony for The Elephant Man. I got to work with Jack on a world premiere of that. I've worked with Marsha Norman, Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, worked with her on the East Coast. Um, I loved working with, uh, I got to work with Diana Wiest. Uh, everybody would know her from Edward Scissorhands. And just, yeah, she's done so many wonderful things. And I got, to, I got to work with her on stage in New York, and that was lovely, many, many years ago. Meryl Streep gave me a kiss right here. <laughs> and I haven't washed my face since. <laughs> um, I did a lot of, a lot of television uh, after that. And finally, I, my, my big break, obviously, was uh, I, I auditioned for uh, Star Wars and Carrie at the same time. Uh, George Lucas and Brian De Palma were very good friends. And uh, they decided to, uh, in order to save time, they would set up casting sessions together. So they sat side by side, um, and they saw just about every young up-and-coming Hollywood actor at the time, and actress, um, which is how they found Carrie Fisher for, for Star Wars. And they found uh, Amy Irving, and they found Sissy. And, um, I think Sissy had done more work than any of us at the time when we did Carrie. Um, she was already well, well known and respected in Hollywood for the work that she had done. Um, 
But that's where I started. I got my big break. I didn't do Star Wars, but I ended up in Carrie. So it was, it was not a bad booby prize. <laughs> People ask me these days, they said, weren't you disappointed when you didn't get Luke Skywalker? Because I did this great audition with uh, Kurt Russell. And, uh, and I said, uh, no, I said, I, I got to do Carrie and I've had a very good career. And God knows we don't need to cry about Kurt Russell's career. <laughs> He's done okay, you know? So um, I did that. I did, I was going to do two or three other films after that. First Love, a good film at Paramount. I did, uh, after that, there was a few other films that you didn't hear about that I was going to do that never got made. Uh, I was going to do, I was signed to do um, uh, a couple films that some other actors got. And I finally ended up going back to New York and doing theater. And then Steve Cannell sent me a script, uh, The Greatest American Hero. And um, I wasn't going to do it, but he asked to come back and see me, take me out to dinner. And I found Stephen Cannell to be one of the most charming, um, gracious, lovely human beings that I had ever met. And um, he completely uh, seduced me into doing that project because I knew that I would have to look like that. <laughs> so I said, well, you're going to have to pay me a lot of money. He said, how about I uh, just make sure you have, uh, uh, you have a uh, good lunch every day and uh, we treat you well. I said, okay. Yeah. So we ended up doing that show and it, it turned out to be uh, a, a watermark in my life. You know. Steve Cannell, other than my father, was probably one of the greatest men that I ever knew. It's just, I wish you could all have met him because he was just lovely. Can you hear me back there? Do I need to talk into this? Okay. I'm trying to project. Okay. Anyway, so um, we did Greatest American Hero together. Uh, a behind the scenes story was whenever I would ask him, prior to doing the show about the superhero suit, he's, uh, he was always saying, oh, we'll get to that later. Don't worry about that. It, it's, it's cool. You'll like it. Get to that later. And I remember the first time I had to see it and put it on. And, and one of the first times, I don't know if anyone remembers the pilot, but there's, he comes out, his son's watching cartoons in the other room, and he looks at the mayor, and I say, hey, sailor. <laughs> Couldn't do that today, but I could do it then. And that was true. I hated it. And I hated it. But it was, it was one of the, it was a great relationship because I think that worked for the show. Because I didn't really have to act. <laughs> and we had a good time. Uh, I got to meet my longtime friend, who I'm still dear friends with, Connie Selica. And uh, she was so much fun to work with because I could make her laugh. And uh, I could get her having the giggles and then it would just, an hour would go by like that because I could just make her laugh. She was delightful. She married wonderful Stephen Tesh. They've been married for, gee whiz, almost 30 years. And uh, we still stay in touch. <clears throat> we sat together at, at uh, Bob Culp's services. Uh, late great uh, Robert Culp passed away about five years ago or so and, and we sat at his memorial service 
and we were, I remember commenting that uh, Steve Cannell wasn't there. And then lo and behold, we come to find out that Steve was sick. And uh, he passed about a year later, and that was so unfortunate. He had so much more inside of him to give. Uh, but he had a wonderful career. Steve had written about 43 television series. I don't know how many movie of the weeks he had done. And then after he finished with all of that, he went off and became, uh, he wrote 10 best-selling novels. I don't know if any of you are aware of that, but he was quite successful. And uh, he never lost his humility, ever. He was just a sweet and kind, uh, from the first time I met him till the last time, and he, he died of a jillionaire. You know. I think he dwarfed uh, our president's wealth. But you never heard about it. You know. But he was certainly one of the most successful independent producers outside of Aaron Spelling. Uh, he, and just, just a lovely, lovely man. Um, he lost his son, I don't know if all you know. He lost his 15-year-old son during the second season of our show, and that greatly affected the workflow on the, on the show, and it affected, I think, ultimately impinged upon why the show didn't go on, um, because he was so, uh, he was so crushed by his son Derek's, uh, by the loss of his son. Um, who, he was the sweetest kid in the world. Just a lovely, lovely young man. Steve has three other children now. You know, he had two other children after the death of his son. And uh, went on still to produce the A-Team and all these other wonderful shows. Riptide, and I can't even think of how many more there were. There were so many more shows. What else? After I did that, my career didn't stop. <laughs> I did uh, a few other things, worked with Sean Young on Baby's Secret of the Lost Legend. We spent three and a half, four months in uh, Abidjan, West Africa, and uh, that was quite an experience. One of the most difficult shoots that I had ever been on. There was never any hot water, running hot water. Uh, very seldom did we get Western food. You know, I think they had fried bat, seriously, <laughs> on the menu. Uh, I didn't partake, uh, uh, but I remember getting off the plane back in New York uh, after four months, and I was uh, I made a beeline to get a hot dog and have a hot shower. <laughs> that was it. I did um, one of the other movies that I did that I uh, I, I want to take a minute and pay homage to was um, was House. Yeah. I did that film in 1986 with the, the wonderful Steve Miner. Just a brilliant, brilliant director. Uh, and uh, a lot of the humor from that, from that movie was really directly, came directly from Steve Miner. He was very left, of, always left to center and very quirky. And uh, I got to meet my good friend George Went during that show and, and still to this day, uh, one of my favorite scenes that I've ever done in film or television is the scene when I'm giving George Went, I give him a spear gun and I put goggles on him. <laughs> and, 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 he, and I say, there's a big raccoon in the closet. That was one of my favorite scenes I've ever done. And the funny thing was, George didn't have a lot of dialogue. He was just, 
it was just the look on his face, which is what made it so funny. <laughs> anyway, cut to, you know, in that, in the interim, I had worked with Gary Busey, uh, still very good friends <coughs> with Gary. We put our good friend, Jan Michael Vincent, we pay homage to him. We lost him this last year. Um, worked with, got to work with Richard Lester, uh, who directed the, the Beatles films, and that was a lot of fun. We did a Victoria, Victorian Western together, uh, Butch and Sundance the Early Days with uh, Tom Berenger. I worked with Tom two or three times. I got to do The Rough Riders in Texas with him, a miniseries. Uh, and John Milius directed that as well, who directed Big Wednesday. And uh, what else? Um, the Masons I did with my mom for four years. I did the series Top of the Hill. And uh, pretty much uh, I called it a day after that. No, that's not true. <laughs> call it a day. But um, is there anything people want to talk about? Uh, can I take a question from anybody? Yes. <laughs> this is something that's always bugged me. The fact that it's happened to you, you're like the best person to ask. But when executives make the decision to change something in a set script or movie um, because of social climate and whatnot. I'm talking about when they changed Hinkley's name to Henley for the last three episodes because of the assassination attempt on Reagan Earp. When they changed on E.T. when they re-released it and they digitally erased the guns for walkie-talkies. What, what is your opinion on do you think that's necessary? Do you think that really I think that the, the question was, because of a political climate, something happens, uh, uh, the, why do network executives change change things? Well, I, I, I think the, that a political climate does impinge on, on anything that we do socially, uh, movies or whatnot. You know, as recently as uh, two weeks ago with the Game of Thrones, they, they digitally erased some of the uh, things that shouldn't have been on the set there, you know? <laughs> right? The water bottle and the coffee cup, you know, they, they, they digitally took it out, so you'll never see it again, you know? Uh, they, they changed Hinckley's name when, during the President Reagan attempted assassination because they didn't, they thought it would created a stigma in the show to, to share the same uh, last name, Hinckley. Fortunately, it was only one show, they called him Henley. And then they changed, Michael Parade was actually the one who did it. He called, uh, uh, during a class scene that we were doing in class with all the kids, he called me Mr. H. And the producers loved it. And Ralph Hinckley became Mr. H from that point on. They never called him Hinckley again. I think Bill Maxwell is the only one who called him Hinckley. But most of the time, he called me kid, you know. Hey, kid. You know, so that's where that's where that went. You know, so I think they do do that. They even do it now. You know. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Uh, I'm interested in uh, how it was working with Robert Culp. Robert Culp. Um, to be very honest, Robert Culp and I did not get along very well to begin with. Um, you know, you got to remember Robert Culp was already a star. He was a big star. He had been very successful with Bill Cosby on I Spy. Um, what people don't realize is Bill Cosby's Emmy Award that he received for Best Actor 
was for, for that show, was for one of the scripts that Bob Culp had written. Bob thought of himself first as a writer, then he thought of himself as a director, and then he thought of himself as an actor. And it was always, that was the, the, the way, chronologically, how, it, how he thought of himself. Um, but Bob thought of himself as a big star, and he thought he should have, his, his name should be <laughs> ahead of mine. <laughs> and I said, hey, Bob, you know, it's called the greatest American hero, not the greatest American hero in Friends, you know? <laughs> so, I'm, I'm teasing. It, it never came down to that. But uh, in the show, we shot kind of chronologically to begin with which means we shot from the beginning toward the end of the show. And in the show, if you remember, the characters of Ralph and uh, Maxwell, they didn't get along. So it really worked for the show. We really didn't get along. So there was a lot less um, make-believe we had to do. You know, you walk into a room with someone you don't like, it's easy to not like them, you know? Fortunately, uh, by the second week, all of that was water under the dam, or over the dam. I never could get that right. And uh, we kind of, we slowly, we had a, we, we kind of arrived at a detente and a working relationship. We learned to respect one another, and slowly that grew into a very uh, long and deep friendship. And I was friendly with Bob till the day he passed. You know, that's that's how that story goes. Mm -hmm. Now, and I'll tell you something else about Robert Koch. He was an encyclopedia. His mind was an encyclopedia of movie trivia. He knew everything about every movie that had ever been written or uh, shot. He was just masterful and, and, and a raconteur. In other words, he could tell stories. Uh, just extemporaneously, he could tell stories. A lot like Steve Cannon. He could tell a story and keep an audience on their toes and laughing and entertained. He was just a marvelous, marvelous human being that way. I learned so much from him. You know, I, I kind of fancied myself uh, as a little bit of a writer as well as I, as I uh, grew up. And uh, he taught me a lot. I don't think that there was one scene we did in that show where he and I were together doing a scene there wasn't one scene that was ever done that, that we didn't put our fingerprints all over. We never changed the intent of a scene, but we made the scene work for each of us, him for his character and me for my character. And to some degree, Connie Selica also too. You know? But I think that's what gave it that, uh, that kind of pizzazz and fizzle, you know. Anything else? Yes? I, you know, I was the lead on that show. So they had me working, every, I never got a day off. And days on a single camera show, even now, well, for me then, it was like a 14 hour day. So I'd get up at five in the morning and I wouldn't get home till 10 at night. I never saw my family. And on the weekends, they want you out doing promotion. So nine months of the year, in, in, in those days, the order was 22 or 24 shows. So it takes seven days, so it's a week and a half to shoot a show. 
If you start on a Monday, you wouldn't finish the show until the following Tuesday night, right? Eight days. And then you get the script, you start the new show the next day on Wednesday. And that's the way it goes for nine months. You get a week off at Christmas, but you go nine months. And then you always want to do uh, something. I always did a, uh, I would always go do theater, or I would do a movie of the week or something. That's the way that went. So for four years, I mean, I was exhausted. Nowadays, they have these big shows where there's, it's an ensemble cast. So you'll have 10, 12 characters. So everybody gets some days off, some time away from the set. Much better. Uh, but, but then it was all the time. And when Connie and Bob would get a day off, I'd be on the blue screen doing this. You know? <laughs> so I'd be in a building twice as big as this with the walls painted blue on, on wires and they'd fly me from one side to the other or I'd jump off the floor or I'd hit a wall or, you know. So that, that was my day and I was exhausted. So when you said, was I happy or sad that the show went off? I was both. I was uh, sad because it's a family on the set. You get to know those people on a set more than you, you spend more time with them than you, you do your own family. But by the same token, I was exhausted and happy to not, to not do that. I was offered another series right after that, and I said, no. Big mistake. I'm not going to go into what series it was. Um, but because uh, I was tired. And I just wanted to do some theater film, which I did a, a, a lot of film and a lot of theater. Nobody ever hears about the theater I did, but I did a lot of theater. And I really enjoyed it. That would be my first choice if I had to do something, I would say, I will, I'll go do some theater. So anyway, did I answer it or did I not? <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Speaking of theater, can you talk about your experience playing Pippin? Pippin was something, uh, was, uh, I don't know if everyone in the room knows the play, but it was a great play. Uh, Bob Fosse famously directed the stage version, one of a jillion Tonys. Uh, it was starred Ben Vereen initially. I, I was lucky enough to work with Ben Vereen and Cheetah Rivera, who's also won Tonys for Kiss of the Spider Woman, and she was famous for uh, in uh, West Side Story. Uh, I got to work with both of them on it. And, uh, and, and I finally got to work with Mr. Fosse, uh, who was just fabulous. Have any of you seen the series that's on on FX right now? It's 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 pretty it's pretty good. It's on the DVD. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> He's, he, he really had Bob Fosse pegged. That was exactly how Bob was, and uh, very difficult to work with. I had auditioned for Pippin seven or eight times and, and didn't get it. You know, they had flown me to New York to replace. Uh, couple of the actors and I didn't get that and then finally because I had been so successful on Hero the first half season when I came back into the room they were doing the auditions at the Sophie Hotel in Los Angeles and I walked into a room like this a little smaller and there was a upright piano and uh, Stuart Ostrow was one of the producers with the show and Mr. Fossey was there and I walked in and said Mr. Fossey do I have to audition again because I had done it so many times he said no you got the job <laughs> and, that, and that was great. Um, we uh, we uh, 
we rehearsed it at the Broadway Arts on 57th uh, in New York, and uh, we spent four or five weeks doing the rehearsals, and Fosse was there every day. Uh, and uh, it was just a marvelous experience. I, I really don't, never thought of myself as an actor, as a dancer. So I was kind of an actor who could move a little bit. And uh, one of the p things people don't know is that Ben Vereen came in on two consecutive Sundays on our day off. And he taught me, uh, he taught me the one dance that, uh, that he does with, uh, with Pippin called the right track. And he really taught me how to do that dance because it was hard for me. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Uh, so that's it. You know, we shot it. We went to, uh, we shot that uh, Bob Fosse train, went, flew to Canada before we did the, the show. And he uh, took uh, guys that had been shooting hockey. He took nine cameras and taught the guys how to shoot a piece of theater. It had never been done before. And uh, we, we took it, we shot that over five days. And then, uh, brought the camera up for one day and was shot on stage. But it was all done with a live audience. It's really fantastic. It certainly sits at the zenith of my career. The only thing I can think of differently was I got to work with a, a Tony winner, a Jack Hoffsis. I did two plays with him. And I also got to work with Randy Newman uh, in Seattle uh, in 2003. I got to do a play with Randy Newman. And that was like doing a master's class because uh, one of the great things about that was that we all had to read music. And uh, being that I had studied music and all the actors, there were seven of us, we could all read. And so we first two weeks of rehearsal, we sat around with a book about two inches thick and we read. Uh, and, and it was a wonderful play with a, with a great seven piece band and it was seven actors on stage and it was all music and movement. And we went through his whole, most of his catalog and told his story of how he came to Hollywood, you know, how, how his rise in, in the world of pop and how he finally moved into films and how he won, uh, won his Academy Award, you know. That was fabulous. Yeah, I love the theater. <laughs> Hope I get to do it again someday. Anything else? What was your, your, your funniest moment my funniest moment on Hero. You know, I used to love to get the, have the suit on and I'd run out in the middle of traffic. <laughs> I always got a kick out of that, you know? Yes? Um, with things changing drastically from the 80s to now, uh, you know, what we thought was safe and acceptable, um, you were off young and needed the series. How, did you sustain any injuries? As I know, you know, things got a lot stricter with protecting actors when it comes to stunts and such like that. No, we were, we were great. Our, our stunt coordinator and the guy who doubled me and did most of, uh, most of the big stunts was a guy named Dennis Danger Madelon, <laughs> um, who was uh, probably at the, at the time he held the record for high falls. In other words, you could jump out of a 14-story building into an airbag. So he held the record for that. Um, he coordinated uh, 10 Speed and Brown Shoe. He did a bunch of other shows for Steve Cannell. And uh, he was brought on and he did all of our stunts and coordinated all of our stunts. And I'm happy to say that no one ever really got hurt. Uh, and we did some pretty hairy stunts. 
I did a lot of work with helicopters and not wood. Never, never got hurt. You know, and we did some hairy stuff and close calls with helicopters. You know, they're, they're dangerous things. You know, we almost decapitated a few times. And, and uh, it was, it, well, while we were doing that show, it was uh, not long after that show that they had that horrible accident at Indian Dunes. When all those, uh, when the children and uh, and Rob Morrow died because of a helicopter accident, um, so no, we were very lucky. We were very lucky. Very lucky. Any other questions? You, okay, you're looking yes. at me. <laughs> so we talked a couple weeks ago. I'm the one from Denver that you called, and there was a, a Mike? question, huh? Mike. Doug. Doug. Oh, okay. Close. Yes. Um, and there was a question I thought of after we talked, and it's been bugging me till now. Okay. So you come from a Hollywood family. Yes. And we talked about you doing executive producing and then writing and directing. Coming from a Hollywood family, was there ever a question that you weren't going to work in Hollywood on some level? I, when I was younger, I, well, I was studying music, but I thought I was going to, I thought I was going to be a professional pilot. A pilot? Yeah. Like airline, yeah. private, oh, okay. Private's where the money is, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, it, it didn't work out. I had a couple very close calls and I decided not to fly anymore. Was it helicopters? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was fixed wing. Okay, just making sure. Yeah, yeah. I still love to fly, but I sit in the passenger seat. <laughs> no wires. No wire, and no wire. Yeah. There you go. Yes. Did you? Oh. Go ahead. Oh. Um, did you ever think that the show, that the Great American Hero, would have such a lasting effect on people, and that people would still be so interested in the it? Show the show was, better? you know, they kept moving the show around. Uh, we aired after the Super Bowl, first time for the pilot, it was a huge hit. We got picked up. We got an order. Uh, and then by the end of the first season, they started moving us around, moving the nights. When that happens, that's never a good thing. Uh, and then finally, they put us on opposite Dallas on Friday night, and that's where they used to put shows that they wanted to die. And we knew we were dead. Um, oddly enough, the show did so well in reruns that two years after we ended, Brandon Tartikoff, uh, rest in peace, a very good friend of Steve Cannes. Brandon called me on the phone personally, and he asked me to come back and do that show. And uh, he made some, it was a very significant offer for me to come back and do that show. But I was already doing the Perry Mason specials and getting to work with Raymond and getting to work with my mom and uh, so I declined, and that's when they did that show with the female, the greatest American heroine. And I came back, and I, and I, uh, Connie and I came back, and we were in it briefly. I don't think the show ever made it to air. That's recently what happened. You know, they remade the show a year and a half ago with a girl in the lead, uh, an East Indian girl in the lead, and everything was very urban very uh, ethnic, and it was all by the showrunner on Supergirl. She was running the show, and it was all female. Female producers, directors, most of the crew, everything. 
and it didn't work. Now, I never saw it. Uh, my friend George Wynn was a regular, was shot the pilot, he was in it. Um, but he said it was, it was pretty good. But I, I, and the young girl who played the lead, I understand she was delightful. I don't know why it didn't go. I don't know. Well, yeah, I do, they didn't have me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anything else? Yes, you had a question. You just answered. I did? <laughs> I'm going to ask about this puzzle that's reboot that I never heard much about. I want to see it. Don't you want to see it? I think the fans want to see it. We should start a letter writing campaign that we want to see it. We demand to see it. I know. I know. Okay. Are we done? Yes. I saw, I saw the remake. I thought, uh, you know, you can't argue with the fact that uh, Chloe Moretz and Julianne Moore are not marvelous actors, both of them. Um, my personal feeling was that it was, it was good, it was different, you know. I think that there was too much CGI, and I thought that Chloe Moretz is too pretty play that part. One of the things they did with Sissy, Sissy's a pretty girl too, but she really worked on, they really worked on making her kind of plain and simple. And uh, that's where I think the, the fault lies. Um, but also the cast that we had on the first one, you know, Nancy Allen and John Travolta and, and PJ Souls and myself and John Travolta, I mean, it was really lightning in a bottle. And you had, uh, um, you know, our director, was, Brian De Palma, it was his seminal film. I mean, that's the film that made, put Brian De Palma on the map. We were, that, that film was reviewed, it was like a, uh, we were in Time Magazine and Newsweek the same week. It, it, was, it was an anomaly. You know, that this horror film really was, did that well. It, it was like a B film, but it looked like an A film, you know. Did we know it was gonna be successful? No. I was living in a, I was a struggling young actor, uh, you know, struggling doing gigs on the side and living in unemployment, living with two other guys in a house in a white ghetto neighborhood. Um, and, and just happy to have a job. We were all just happy to have a job. And uh, we had no idea it was gonna be like that. But it was a lot of fun to shoot because it was all young men and women, you know, in our early 20s, we were on a set. We all got to goof off together. I mean, it was like, it, it was like living in a dorm, you know? It was a lot of fun. We got to rehearse with Brian. People say, well, what was it like on the set? Well, Brian, the way he worked, he had these three by five cards. And when I first went to his apartment, his whole apartment was covered in three by five cards. He had every shot planned out that he was gonna do. And you'd see him take a scene here and move it over here, take this over here, move it over here. He had the whole thing planned what he was gonna do. And then we rehearsed for two weeks on a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder, because they didn't have VHS at the time. And he would let us improv or have our own take on a written scene and 
and change things around, and he would make changes in the script. But once we got to the set, that was it. He didn't really fool a lot with the actors. He was all about the camera and all about the lighting and very, very focused. That's what that was, you know. Yes. Butch and Sundance. Butch and Sundance. What was that like? Was it, I mean, it looked like it was fun to make and. Butch and Sundance was a film probably not many of you have seen. It was, uh, it was uh, Richard Lester directed and that's the reason Tom Berenger and I decided to do it. Um, both he and I had, 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 had not, had, set, had turned the film down because uh, famously Paul Newman and Robert Redford were so uh, immortalized by having done that film that we all felt that it would, was like subterfuge to try and, that we would try to capitalize on their fame, which was certainly not what we were trying to do. I was just trying to make a living. Um, and I can say the same for Tom. Um, but uh, Richard Lester was so charming and lovely, he convinced us he was going to make a Victorian Western, which he did. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Who, who wouldn't have, there's not a guy here who wouldn't love to spend three or four months on a horseback up in Telluride, you know? <laughs> it was so much fun, you know? Uh, great film. Great film, underrated it's film, I think. Fun to watch. Fun to watch, underrated film. Uh, but it, it died a quick death in the theaters. You know? Unfortunately, 20th Century Fox was going through a regime change at the time, and uh, usually when that happens, any film projects that are on the slate by the former uh, bosses at the studio, they get, they get thrown in the trash because everybody that's coming in, they want to put all their time and energy into their projects, right? So we were on the outgoing regime and they threw us away. That's what happened with that. Anything else? Yes? Yes, I have. Sit down. <laughs> yeah, I, I talked about that. It was, it, I'll just, to, to recap very quickly, it was, it was a great experience. We rehearsed in New York and shot it in, uh, up in Toronto, and I, it was a great experience working with, with all those people. You know, I almost got to do Kiss of the Spider Woman with Cheetah Rivera years later, but I was number two. And that, that number two only counts in horseshoes. <laughs> Any other questions? Otherwise, we'll wrap this up. Yes? Oh, I'm sorry. Well, since you were in Carrier, I mean, obviously, the, well, the brilliance and power that Stephen King wills is never ending. There's always projects coming up in, in one way or another. Is there one that you would like to, you like to be a part of in the future of uh, other books that he's written? Anything that you need to think you could take on in a movie? Oh my God! <clears throat> I don't. I, I. don't know. I'm not. Uh, I'm not that. I'm not a vociferous reader. I mean, I don't read lots. Um, I usually, when I have spare time, I'm sitting at the piano or something. So, 
you know, that's my, uh, my passion. Um, I don't really think about things that I would love to do. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to be back on TV eventually. I'd like to think about doing that. For the last several years, I don't know if anyone knows, my mom passed away about two years ago, two and a half years ago, and I've been busy uh, taking care of her estate. Uh, and I lost my younger sister shortly thereafter, unexpectedly, and that was, so I, I was taking care of both my sister's estate and, and her estate. And so now I just recently got a new agent. I hadn't had an agent in 10 years because I had been line producing and just working behind the scenes setting up and I've done about 50 television commercials that I produced um, but I hadn't really uh, spent much time thinking about acting in quite a while maybe now I will I don't know but nothing in particular Stephen King I don't know he's he's got he can have anybody he wants <laughs> any other questions yes one more was your hair naturally curly or was it it was curly? naturally curly <laughs> I still have some. You still have some. <laughs> still have some. But it was really curly. It was, but you look at Carrie, my hair was curl it was curly then. Uh-huh. I mean, and my hair has always been not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> I never looked that bad. <laughs> so that does look like the wig that your stuff guy wore. It does look like that. <laughs> yeah, his wig was that bad for yeah. sure. <laughs> Okay, yes, did you have one more question? Yeah, other than Pippin, do you have a favorite theater production that you've been a part of? Uh, probably the Randy Newman piece that I did. Maybe Days of Wine and Roses that I did uh, at, uh, at the Cleveland Rep, I did. Yeah, that was, that was a great piece too. But, yes, any other questions? Thank you all for coming. It's been delightful. I hope I can more. If you like this, check out some of our other shows like Exotic Liability, No Applause, Just the Clap, and Black Falls. We can be found at www.bacnpodcast.com and by searching for The BACN on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. Yeah.